This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with a zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute, and available reclining lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Okay. Yes. That was pretty good. Nonprofits, we're back. How is everybody? I'm Frankie French. I'm Stephen Campbell. And together we are the Nonprofits. nonprofits. Yeah. Oh my goodness, you're getting so good at doing well, it's it. Better, it's time. easier when we're in the same place because when we're in the same place, I can watch it off your lips. <laughs> That's how That's... I keep my rhythm. Is... And there's a little bit of a zoom. The weirdest thing I've ever heard. I can't, I can't watch your lips as nicely. <laughs> Mental note, guys. Steven's constantly watching my lips. Yeah. Also, huge shout out. uh, We are now with MSW Media. Oh, my goodness. I know. Big shout out to those guys. First episode with them. We are very pumped for the partnership, working with them and uh, getting things moving, bringing, shining some light on some important social issues and all that jazz. Absolutely. But it has been a month. Um, Oh, it has been a month. It's been. Oh my God, you guys, have you missed us? I'm sure they have. I'm sure. Have you been crying every day? I've been crying every day, missing you guys. It's yeah. Well, it's been um, in the last month. I mean, we've done a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. I had all of my clothing was taken from me. All of it happened. So my um, I moved apartments, and I had a lease at two places at one time because of whatever i just had to make a decision it's because he's stupid i'm an idiot it's not a big i had the lease at two places and so i had all the movers come in the middle of the month because that's cheaper and the management company thought i moved out threw away everything else outside of heavy furniture so clothes pictures everything all of the keepsakes all of that stuff all the stuff kitchen stuff but i'm uh i'm very lucky to have very good friends that just got married and I'm getting all kitchen stuff oh, nice. reloaded tonight. Yeah. Oh, sweet. That's awesome. So wait a minute. They got gifts that they're giving to you. Yeah, you know, and I... That's nice of them. No, no, no. They, well, they now have kitchen stuff that they... Oh, they have doubles. Would have, yeah. Gotcha. Right. Oh, because so, they're moving into... So okay, that been, makes sense. They would have been, uh, like, putting it in storage and instead storage. Got like, instead of storage, it'll be Steven's storage. I got very lucky that I have beautiful friends. Shout out to Lisa. Shout out to Kevin. Shout out Lisa and Kevin. And now I can cook us that steak. Yeah, yeah, we've been talking about that for yeah. a while. It'll be amazing. We've, I'm an incredible cook, guys. You should know that. We've been doing a lot of stuff in person. Uh, yeah, we did our first live podcast. That for with Lululemon. Yeah, with Lululemon. It was amazing. It was um, incredible. That'll be coming out soon. Uh, that was actually a really good time. And then we did Oliver Scholars, where... It, oh, that's right. A live comedy show for Oliver Scholars. Anyone who hasn't listened to the episode, go back and listen about Oliver Scholars. They um helping kids get placement in school, yeah. very innovative ways. Uh, yeah, they're great. Um, the Lululemon episode that we did, we're actually going to put it out today's Thursday. Yeah, so we'll put it out um, today on Patreon. If you want to catch it, we'll put some teasers out 
so you can hear how fantastic it was. And if you want to listen to it early, check it out on Patreon, and then we'll drop it. <laughs> be an early investor be an early, in the yeah. Patreon movement. Yeah. Well, we um, it's always like very awkward to do any like self promotion for me. Do you, what do you mean? Like, like on stage, like I've just recently started telling people what my Instagram is when I have. Oh, I yeah. Like, I'm talking really... about Patreon. I'm like, go to go to Patreon, and I don't know what the pitch is, but if you if this you go is, this week, yeah, it's a great episode. So you just get to tell everybody that you heard it first. That's pretty special. It is. It's a great. It's a really great episode. Um. So what's been going on with you in the last month? You moved. I moved. I officiated a wedding in Prague. That's weird. Yeah, 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 it was super odd. I um I had to do it with a guy next to me that was translating it into Czech. Oh wow! So I would I would holler the stuff, and they were like, "Yo, we need it to be funny," and so I'd have to ask the guy if jokes translated to Czech. Yeah, and and they didn't. Everyone Perfect. that he said that would translate didn't really translate. Excellent. But they didn't like me right off top because I was like very nervous for it. Because it's not a wedding. Weddings are a big deal. You know those people are not actually married now. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it didn't count, right? Well, they already were officially married and mine was a celebratory. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So oh. it really didn't count all that much. So I could have messed it up all I wanted. So you're not ordained to marry people? Well, no, I'm ordained just in the state of Arizona and I did it so that people would call me Rev. And it never worked. And nobody you ever know, called me what? Rev. Yeah, yeah, I got ordained to be a minister. So, so that people would call you Rev. That was where I was hoping. You happen. need a hug, Stephen, from a priest. <laughs> yeah, you need a hug. That's what Something's I was hoping. going on. I just thought that would be such a cool nickname to have. But and you also know you can't give yourself a nickname. That's I was, how Mickey names I was made aware. Yeah. I was made aware of that after. Um, <laughs> call me I, Coach, guys. Oh, I, is that your nickname? I want it to be. I was going to parties with my certificate that I had printed out from. Wow. <laughs> wow hoping someone would be like oh what's that like, oh no oh. nobody had to ask nobody, <laughs> nobody had to ask i was right away i was just like oh do you guys i am ordained minister in arizona what would you like to call me now i thought it was funny it wasn't like oh it's I was, hilarious i thought it was funny yeah. it, it wasn't like i was like oh pff, people are gonna like me a lot more once i become a rep that's hilarious oh, that's just i might thing. just go to the arizona to marry someone so you can officiate it yeah. Would it go to Arizona to marry someone so that you would do that for me? Oh my god, totally. That'd be yeah, so fun. Hell yeah. For shits and gigs, that'd be hilarious. I nailed it though. I think my only uh slip up was that they told me to just start talking as soon as the music stopped, and the music stopped, but it was for the bride to come out. And I took started talking the music cue and just started right out the gates. Who are you talking to? A whole crowd of people because everybody comes in, the bride comes in last. Oh, so like wedding parties in there, whole crowd is there. Right, right. but the bride wasn't at the altar. So who were you talking? I have an idiot. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, we've already established that, but you keep trying to argue that you're not. No, no, yeah. I was just right out uh (laughs) because Right out the gate was just like, I think I speak for everybody. You're like, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> well, I, I think I speak for, ev- I think I, uh, I speak for myself, Carter, and Vero. I say, thank you for coming. And when I said, I speak for Carter, Vero, Vero was the bride. Right. And as I said her name aloud, I was like, hmm. I don't think yeah. I speak for her right now because she's, she's not, not here. here. Americans, hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Czech people were pissed. It was just very 
sullen faces. The Americans, really? the Americans were hysterical, and then Perfect. I couldn't stop laughing. So now I'm laughing at Excellent. the altar. Um, then I picked picked up the pace and really killed it. Perfect. Good job. Proud of you. Thanks. How, let's try to get it done. Now that we've talked about cheeky stuff, let's. <laughs> well, how about how am I doing? How are you doing, Frankie? What have you been up to? Well, well, it's not the Stephen Show. Well, it's I know. the nonprofits. My my um my transition was now that we're talking about cheesy stuff. <laughs> then we were gonna. In my mind, it was going to transition this... better into you volleying back to you. Oh, I, right. I see how you were getting there, but no, yeah. <laughs> and just this that is was... the thing. This is. <laughs> Join our Patreon now, and <laughs> and you'll you'll see later when we're not Stephen's not fumbling footballs, and you'll be that like, I remember. And I remember when sometimes he said stupid stuff. At that point, I'll be saying only smart stuff. Frankie, how are you? I'm great. I'm good. I um I have a lot going on actually. Right, we did. What we already talked about Lulu. We um I got into the cellar in New York. Yes, which is exciting. So if anyone listening, if you'd ever like to come see me live, follow us obviously on on Instagram and you'll see my seller dates and you can come down in New York and check out a show. It'll be dope. Um, I have some stuff coming out on TV. So I have an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm coming out. Yeah. Uh, episode six, so that'll be exciting. Then you can see my face. And I have another show with Anthony Anderson coming out. I don't know when yet. So I can't really tell you about that. But when it does, I will. It's all big things. And last night I hung out with Busta Rhymes. Yeah, what? Okay, so tell me, <laughs> tell me more about that. Because you said, you said a little bit, but I'd love to just reiterate. I mean, it was just, it, you know, stuff like that can be kind of surreal. You know what sure. I mean? Like, you grow up listening and seeing sure, this sure. person on TV, and then they're just standing right there. And it's like, well, that's weird that you're standing there. And I know you, but I don't know you. You know what I mean? And he was super nice. Um, yeah, he was super nice. We hung out and kicked it and danced. Were you able to smoke a blunt with Buster Ryan? Oh, um, no. Oh, he offered, but um, I, had, I, I had had a drink. You know, I can't drink and smoke sure, food, so. Sure. But yes, he offered. Damn, so, that would have been, I, I, may, I may have been okay with still smoking and being. No, because that, that wouldn't have been a good look. So good to meet you, bus. Yeah. <laughs> and then I just rock all over his brand new shoes. Yeah, that would have been. He'll remember you. Talib Pali was there. Oh, wow. I was so, he was DJing all night. He oh, was very, very cool. sweet. Yeah, he's, um, his barber is Kenny Warren that manages the parent. Oh, word. Yeah. Oh, yeah I was like, cool. we have a friend in common. He's like, who? I said, your barber. He goes, Kenny Warren? I was like, yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, so it's kind of cool. Um, does he still live in Brooklyn? Yes, he does. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. How did you know that? Because I was surprised. I knew he was from Brooklyn. I mean, I yeah. So because Kenny was saying yesterday that he had to come up to Brooklyn to uh, cut his hair. Oh wow! Yeah. So cool stuff's been going on. Just we're in very, very cool adjacent cool orbit. What was I trying to say? I don't know. Uh, oh, another big too. thing I did. I did Moon Tower in Austin. Oh, yeah, that was huge. That was a bit, yeah, um, huge festival. Amazing. So and you did how many shows? Eight. I did eight shows. Eight shows. How many of them were uh, with the goddamn comedy channel? Well, I, oh, so I did one, like, official that I was on, but yeah. 
the band like invited me back every night to do the closing song with them. Wait, so explain for people that don't know what that is with the goddamn comedy jam. Is. Oh my goodness. So first of all, you can actually see it, not the one that I'm on, but it was a TV show at one point on Comedy Central. So if you have Amazon Prime uh, uh, video, you can go there and, and look it up and watch it. It's definitely worth, I think it's like $1.99 to rent it or whatever. It's called Goddamn Comedy Jam. So the way the show works, there's a live official rock band backing you up. You go up and you tell a story related to whatever song you're gonna sing. And then you lead into your song. So I told a story about my daughter, <laughs> excuse me. And then I told everyone that she is a very sweet child of mine. And then, oh, yeah, right. and then I sang Guns N' Roses, okay. yeah. It was oh, that's fun. pretty epic. That's pretty fun. Yeah. Um, so we do have, we do have, uh, guests. We have yeah. guests. So yeah, let's get into it. So this week's episode, it's going to be a little heavier and that happens sometimes and we're, we're happy to do it. And we're very excited to bring our guests on. Um, October, you guys don't know, um, you should know October is domestic violence awareness month. And the two groups that we have coming on with us today are MSV men, Stopping Violence and MSP, I'm sorry. Yeah, MSP, My yeah, Sister's yeah. Place, uh, along with a good friend of ours, comedian and activist, Russ Green. Uh, and they are all in coordination working with the HBCU golf tournament to raise money for these wonderful folks. So, uh, also well, shout out to Frankie for just boom, nailing it. I mean, <laughs> that's what Frankie does. Frankie so, does, Frankie yeah. does. I was trying to double dutch into the intro. I was like, no, she's just fucking, she's killing Yeah, I've heard of it. I've heard of it. Yeah. Let's, let's round of applause for that. Um, so I, I don't know if you know, Stephen, but I, I grew up, unfortunately, um, in and around a lot of domestic violence. Like, I, I never was able to, like, have friends over. Oh. It was, not because I couldn't, but the one time I tried to bring a friend over, like, after school, um, we were biking down... <laughs> So this is not, it's not funny, but looking back, certain aspects of it are funny because it's interesting how a kid's mind processes things. Sure. You know what I mean? And what you kind of do, you know, the, anyway, so we're biking down our driveway and as we get in front of my house, you see my stepfather come like flying out the front door and um, he's beating the crap out of my brother and my mom. Damn. And uh, I turned to my friend, I was like, oh, they're working on a play. We gotta go. Oh my God. Cause I was so, you know, right? and not, you know I was a kid, of you know course, what I mean? I couldn't say, oh yeah, sometimes my dad, my stepdad beats the shit out of us. Do you know what I mean? Because of it's, course. there's that uh, layer of shame and embarrassment, right? Even though it's not your fault, you still feel uncomfortable and ashamed. So I was like, oh yeah, this is a play my family's doing <laughs> and they're working out scenes. So, we can't go in right now did because they, we don't. Did they believe that? No, of course. Come on, of course I don't they know, didn't. But they were it. also kids of. They, men, they didn't say they did or didn't. They were just sure. like, yeah, cool. Let's just go to my house and have dinner. Sure, sure. I was like, thanks. And I, I, I remember like getting there and being like, can we be my mom? You know what I mean? Like, I yeah, yeah, it's just so. Okay, yeah, this is very sad. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. It's um, not not an easy topic, but we are talking domestic abuse. Um, it's a real, real situation. It is, and it's something that um, almost everybody that I've had a serious relationship with has some sort of experience with 
it's some level of domestic abuse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that as a guy, I have the privilege of being aloof of it sometimes that like anytime that stories do come out about people that I was close with, I, every single time, like I had no fucking idea, right? Or, yeah. Um, and it is a thing that it is so much more pervasive than than anyone thinks, I guess, or than anyone that's outside of of domestic abuse or having it in their orbit is aware of. Um, But it is something that uh, we we really like to shine some light on. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's needed. And, and, but also you said as a man, you're not readily aware, but men get abused too. Sure. 100%. 100%. So I I think that's an important thing to, you know, to remember because Oh, and I think that it gets, and we'll ask our ex- experts, but I feel like it probably gets reported less. Too. Sure. It gets reported less. And, and also, I think um, some of the stuff that, that we are going to talk about is what kind of different abuses it looks like. Right. Um, where a lot of times people have like a traditional idea of striking somebody, hitting somebody. Right, right. Oh, there, there are layers <laughs> and levels. Let's bring our wonderful guests on now. Uh, please welcome Russ Green. Elena Romanova from My Sister's Place and you, Lester Douglas from Men Stopping Violence. Hey, welcome, you guys. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come on and chat with us. We'd like to start with uh, Russ and then we'll go to Elena and then you, Lester. If you guys could just each introduce yourself, what you do and what your uh, organization does, that'd be great. Sure. My name is Russ Green. I'm a writer and comedian. I do not refer to myself as an activist because activists get death threats. Got it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was fortunate enough to write a piece for BT News in 2017 about uh, domestic and intimate partner violence. And that's what introduced me to these two wonderful organizations, uh, My Sister's Place here in DC and Men Stopping Violence based out of Decatur, Georgia. Oh, wow. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, Russ. Elena Romanova. Hi, my name is Elena Romanova. And uh, I am the development director at My Sister's Place in Washington, D.C. There are many My Sister's Places. It's a catchy name, and it gives you that immediate comfort, perhaps. Uh, The My Sister's Place mission is to shelter, support, and empower the survivors of domestic violence and their children while providing leadership and education to build a supportive community around. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on. How are you, Lester? How are you? Hello, hello. I am doing well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, You're Lester Douglas, and I'm with Men Stopping Violence based in the Atlanta metro area, as Russ mentioned. Actually, physical location is Decatur, which is a suburb of Atlanta, about 10 minutes, 15 minutes from downtown Atlanta. So we go with Atlanta, you know? Hey, everybody knows Decatur, Atlanta. So our mission is to engage men and communities to take action to prevent violence against women and girls. And I want to mention that up front as our mission because as, as um, you know, Frankie just mentioned, yeah, men are also victimized, you know, in intimate partner violence situations. But my focus today, what I'm gonna talk about primarily is male violence against women. That's what we know about, we've been doing it for Next year, we'll make 40 years since we've been around, engaged with thousands and thousands of men 
If there's so-called expertise, I can speak from the, that location in a responsible way, but other forms of intimate partner violence, I know something about it, like you know, same gender relationship, but that's going to be where my focus is going to be. Today. Excellent, thank you so much, you guys. Can you guys tell us, um, <clears throat> excuse me, can you tell us about the event that you have coming up and what it's supporting? and how people can support. Yeah, absolutely. So this is our second annual HBCU golf tournament. Um, it is a triple threat of being a social justice platform uh, where you draw attention to the epidemic rate of violence against women um, and also advocacy for women and children survivors of domestic and partner, partner violence. And also helps to kind of dismantle this structural impact of white supremacy um, by providing access to black people playing the sport of golf. Um, until 70 wow. years ago, um, black people were prohibited from playing and we can see that impact are you serious? i'm dead ass serious um you know you know how it goes in america prohibited from playing like we just couldn't play golf uh, you could get on the course and get shot yeah i mean if you wanted to go that route but if you you showed up that's insane i did not know yeah that. and today it's like even i think it's like less than three percent of all recreational golf players are black so and then i think there's a total of maybe across the pga and lpga 12 black professional golfers. Oh, wow, that's insane. I never so, knew that. Yeah, Russ, I know that you, I've seen through Instagram, you picked up golf quite a bit. Is that like, is that a recent pickup through the pandemic that you started doing that? Or have you been playing golf? Quite you know a how you start comedy and you're really shitty and then you like keep doing it for a few years and you tell people you're awesome at it. Like when you get to like year 15, but you tell people you've been doing it three years. It's kind of like that with me and golf. Like, you know, I started from okay, yeah. 2007. Congratulations, nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> headliner, yeah. How, how can people get involved with the, with the tournament? Are, are there still opportunities to support, to get tickets? Can all people give? Are there sponsors? What are some ways? Out yeah, I would say first and uh, primarily go to our website, www.hbcugolftournament.com. Um, it has all the information in there, how to register and how to sponsor. Um, by the time this airs, unfortunately, registration will be closed. Um, but we are accepting sponsorship through October 15th for this year's event. And then once October 16th begins, we begin planning for 2022 and are receiving sponsorship for next year's event. Awesome. Word. Excellent. Thank you so much. Word. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'd love to talk about my sister's place a little bit. Um, I know that we did a very high level of the work that you guys are doing. Um, could you give give us give us a little bit more than the elevator pitch, but just something that people can uh, sink their teeth into? Know like one of the things that a lot of these tournaments and a lot of these fundraisers that I've found is very often you tell a story of like an individual that was affected by the work that y'all are doing. That's often. Um, something that really drives giving and it's it's something that's very interesting to me because I've been doing a lot of fundraising work for the last 10 years and we would give stats after stats after stats and it wouldn't do anything and then once you would tell like a story of an individual that was helped by your work um it was, it was more impactful more impactful and resonated with yeah um so do you have any individual impact stories from my sister's place Sure. And, you know, I think I want to recognize um, Frankie actually led, provided some leadership to this conversation. You know, it's sharing the story and recognizing that it happens, I think, in everybody's backyard. 
uh, in uh, uh, many, many households because the statistics are truly are staggering nationwide. You know, one in three women and one in four men will experience uh, a form of abuse. And we haven't quite mentioned it's not only physical abuse, it could be emotional abuse, financial abuse. Um, and uh, and that happens more often sometimes. Also, the estimates have it that it probably goes unreported quite a bit. Uh, just to mention that my, sister play, my sister's place also has been around, like your listeners organization, for just a little bit over 40 years. And uh, we serve, uh, while uh, most of our clients are women, uh, we are a low barrier program that is available for all domestic Absolutely. violence survivors and their children. And another important um, uh, part of this conversation, I think, and part of the issue is that we accept women with children in the shelter, and I believe we're one of the only two places, uh, and uh, other places accept women with children, but it's not emergency shelter, there are programs. So when it comes to emergency shelter, um, MSB is one of those organizations. So while we have the shelter that has about 15 uh, accommodates 15 families, which means, you know, um, families with children who accompany them, and it could be sometimes an infant and sometimes for children. We make sure that we work with our clients and provide a whole continuum of services so the clients actually have an opportunity to establish a path towards happy, peaceful, and healthy lives. Mm -hmm. And we do that by providing a variety of services from mental counseling to therapy, to addiction services, to workforce education, uh, to educate and how to take also um, uh, advantage of benefits that might be available for single parents or low-income families. And uh, we make sure that our clients, we work hard to ensure that our clients do not stay in the shelter too long because, of course, you know, everybody on this earth uh, deserves a home. So our next program involves transitional to permanent housing. There are two programs. One offers... Uh, housing up, subsidized housing up to one year because DC is ridiculously expensive for those of us who reside here. We pretty much know that you can, I guess, maybe be really like second to New York or to San Francisco or get in there close to that. Um, and uh, some of the programs offer two years. But once you're a client of MSB, we also provide aftercare services, meaning that you know after you leave, you know you're never not our client anymore. Our uh, goal is that nobody, when they lose a job or have unexpected expenses or unexpected circumstances in their life, um, return home because of financial hardships and uh, and financial insecurity return to their abuser. So uh, we help them with a the move-in, which is a wonderful program. We get a bunch of volunteers donating furniture. We do a blitz move-in. Um, everybody new home, create a new home, uh, you know, sort of necessities to toys, et cetera. And of course, as you said, you know, stories are very important. And so sometimes we're able to share story sometimes we're not but uh, I recently talked to a client who is just fabulous she's a former client she was a client of ours her name is Sharon um, she was a client of ours in the 90s twice wow. and she is now a powerhouse um, she um, she's actually advocated for domestic violence against seniors She's been an advocate for domestic violence fields and she's very well known. She's also an artist and a philanthropist and she will actually have a virtual event 
with MSP on October 21st, and she will be screening the film about her story. So it's one thing oh. to hear and talk about these things. It's another thing to hear it from a survivor's perspective mm -hmm. and to see, and then you truly understand what that does to a person on many, many levels for many, many years and how important for all of us to have this discussion today. So thanks again for having us. Oh, absolutely. Well, one of the questions that I did have, um, so I was also personally in a very abusive relationship before my husband, uh, grossly abusive to the point where he actually wouldn't let me leave and held me captive like underneath the stairs. Like it was a horrific experience. And I know when I finally got out of it, I'll never forget this day, as long as I live, I had woke him up and I, I remember feeling terrified and knowing that I was gonna get hit. And I walked into his room um, just to try to apologize, you know, to maybe quell his anger. And um, he said to me, what's wrong with you? I go to sleep and you lose your mind. And it was like a light bulb came on in that second and I just started laughing and he hit me and knocked me to the floor and I just kept laughing and I looked at him and I said, you know what? I said, you're absolutely right. When you go to sleep, if you're not here, I don't know who I am. I don't know how to think. I don't know what I can do. I don't, I don't know anything. And I called the police, he went to jail and my brother and sister came and got me and I never went back. But even after I left, it took years for me to be able to talk to people. I couldn't even, I didn't even know how to communicate just in regular conversation with people. And, and I remember just, even though I, I moved 3000 miles away, still feeling terrified all the time. So my question is, how do you work with that, with that, with confidentiality when someone's getting out of that situation, how are they kept safe? Certainly, and every and thank you again for sharing. This is this is exactly you know I think what draws attention to the issue and makes people understand how long the trauma is, what the trauma may be, and how you lose that confidence. Uh, one of the things you know I don't know you might have seen uh, the UK I think several years ago did this powerful um, thing. It, it must have cost millions of dollars, but it was this interactive um, billboard. Mm -hmm. And it featured a face of a woman who was clearly physically abused. Mm -hmm. And so if one person was turning their head around and looking at that particular billboard, the more people did that, the more the face started to heal during that process. Oh. So the <clears throat> motto that went with that, if you see it, you can stop it. So in the way that I interpret it is that not that you or your relatives necessarily can see it, but the fact that we're talking about it is already what's raising awareness mm -hmm. uh, and what's making sure that we understand that it is not taken, it's not about the person who's being abused. And sometimes it may not be about the abuser. And I'm sure Ulyssa will talk a little bit more about that. But how we protect our clients um, is we provide them with panic buttons which uh, can be linked to 911 as well as to some of the other emergency contacts. Mm -hmm. And the majority of the cases, thankfully, they have not been used, but we maintain confidentiality of our shelter location, of course, as well as everybody's addresses, everybody's names. And as much as I want to sometimes, you know, humanize our social media in a sense of, you know, having a conversation with a client, mostly we're able to share the stories in print and or tell 
um, those um, stories during opportunities such as this one. Right, absolutely, thank you. You last, sir. Sure, sure. So, um, I mentioned what our mission is, right? Yeah. Which is to engage men and communities to take action to prevent violence against women and girls. And generally speaking, communities are very invested in hearing about these quote unquote bad guys. Like, what do, you, what do you do with those guys? You work with those guys, tell us about those guys. That is communities in primary interest. So I wanna come back and tell a story about that since that's what people want to know about, but I wanna give it a little bit of context. And that is um, to make clear that at least um, as far as men stopping violence is concerned, we do not see the problem of male violence against women as a problem of individual men. This is a societal mm -hmm. problem, a systems mm -hmm. problem. The problem is the environment, if you may. That's all about you know, that intersectional st structural inequality and so on and so on. We can do more about that later on. And so because that's how we see the problem, we go about achieving our mission to, through a number of programs but the primary one is education. We have a national international reach. We do a lot of training for organizations, just name it, the judicial, the militaries, Department of Defense, Department of State, and so on and so on, name it, right? And um, we have classes, yes, for uh, men who you know, abuse women. Then we do, uh, we have an internship program we have a program for men who complete the program already called um, CRP, the Community Restoration Program. So we, we stay engaged with men who finish the program to quote unquote, give back to community. Um, we have a space that we created recently during the pandemic for men to gather called the huddle, because when there was a lockdown, a lot of the activities that a lot of men were engaged in weren't available anymore. And women were saying, we're at more risk. And you know, the numbers went up during the pandemic because women were locked in sometime with the men who abused them. And we thought it was important to create some space for men to process and to seek help and so on and so on. Then we also have the Emoja, the Emoja Hour. Um, and I can go on and on the number of programs, but let me answer, you know, answer, you know, answer Stephen's question about a, a story because that's what, that's what people want to hear about, right? So a good example, one of the requirements in our intervention program, which is a 24-week program, again, because of how we define the problem, which the problem is community or communities, we require that individual man to bring in a man from his community during the half point and at the end of the program. So right around 12 weeks, they bring in a man from his community, 24 weeks, he bring in two men from his community, but he's also supposed to take a lesson from the curriculum and share it with at least four other men. You see what we're trying to do here is engage his primary community, his system to be part of the solution, right? Which is very unique. Most intervention programs don't do that. Only the programs probably right now that we have trained, many of them are, are um, adopting that, that approach to intervention program. You're, so what's happening is he, the man will engage with other members of his community and they will be holding him accountable in some ways? Is that? Well, that, that's, that's, the, that's exactly right. That's the goal, right? Is to, because what happened is that most men who committed acts of violence against women in its many forms, even if it's verbal, the people around them don't know anything about right. it. it. It's privatized, right? right? Mm -hmm. Close friends, family members oftentimes don't have a clue, mm -hmm. right? 
um, about what is going on. So we're saying that's a problem. The more privatized it is, the more likely it is to thrive. So engage a close friend. It could be a boss. It could be a, a brother. Somebody from his what we call primary community to be to be aware of what he's done, mm -hmm. um, and also be to be part of the solution. Right the light. Yeah, put some light on it. I, I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, very unique. Yeah. I mean, with all the intervention programs across the country, because again, rather than most of the programs are focusing on the individual men, we're saying, uh-uh, we got to go community. We got to yeah. engage the community as part of the solution. <laughs> so this man, as his 24-week program, 24-week um, um, closing, actually brought in his father. And after he shared... Um, what was his worst incident of violence against women, which is one of the requirements of, of the curriculum, is you think about the worst thing you've ever done to a woman and you have to own it, talk about what you do, how she was impacted, and so on and so on. And after his father heard it, his father said, I just want to acknowledge so much of what my son learned, he learned from mm. me. I abused his uh, mother. He's, he never told uh, us that. So here was the father coming in as a witness, we call it, as a part of the support, the father owning that he was responsible for so much of what his son learned and that he is going to enroll in the program himself. That, yeah, it was really quite moving. I can feel it even as I talk about it. So, so that's, that's community in, 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 in action. And we measure, we see that as examples of success because there's a mutual support there that is going on. And there's another part of ownership of the problem and so on and so on. So that is one of the, the stories that come to mind. That's amazing. I would also add that if you just look at the panel assembled, right? You have Frankie as a black woman, you know, you have your Lester as a black man, you have Elena, you know, coming from an immigrant's perspective, you have Steven, you know, we're, you have me. We're all from different backgrounds and perspectives, yet all of us have been impacted in some way or touched by domestic and intimate partner violence. Mm -hmm. So it gets back to your point, Steven, earlier about the pervasiveness of this. You know, this is a culture of violence against women. Mm -hmm. This is a culture that's punishment oriented and about domination. And I think what's so beautiful about Men Stopping Violence and My Sister's Place both is they, the root um, of their work is based on Bell Hook's study, where it talks about the culture of violence that we're all within and what the threat of patriarchy does and what the, th the threat of misogyny does to people and when we engage relationships. Um, I was struck by the piece that I wrote just learning that more than 50% of relationships, that is the majority, are unhealthy and violent. You know, people don't think about yeah. things like that. You don't move through the world thinking that, like, if I pick this other person, you know, I may be, I may be abused or I may be an abuser. You know, you don't operate that way. So, uh, you know, for me, it was more, you know, to the point of uh, this needs to be talked about and socialized. Can I, can I ask? So, outside of like we were saying, like physical abuse, where um, it, on both sides, you kind of talked about a spectrum of what abuse can look like outside of that spectrum. Um, when you say, when you say that a, uh, each relationship or that 50% of relationships have some sort of abuse, what are some other ways that that manifests outside of physical, physical abuse? So the thing is, I mean, uh, <clears throat> we're, we're human beings. So thusly, we're very excited about drama. Right. And, you know, physical violence is very dramatic and our culture depicts a lot of graphic um, violent images. Certainly, if you look at any um, any blockbuster movie, there's, you know, guns and beatings and all sorts of stuff. 
Um, but I would, I would say if you look at the macro level of our culture, you know, we live under a society dominated by white supremacy. That's 500 years of structural violence, you know, policy-based violence against people of color. Um, and what that looks like is a daily kind of burden um, that's weighing on the shoulders of black people. That's a psychological violence. That's a, um, it's a financial violence. When you look at something like gentrification, you know, that's economic violence. It's an emotional violence. When you have, you know, white peers and colleagues and friends say stuff like, well, I didn't even know that niggas were getting shot. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing is, is overwhelming. And I think that's what we need to consider when we talk about relationships. Um, and I just throw that in there for context, but I would lean heavily on the sure. understanding and the ex expertise of the, of the panel here. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sure, and I just wanted to say, you know, um, we can talk a little bit about statistics because I think um, that is always uh, a very important thing to address. And I think having our eyes, you know, not wide shut and uh, truly wide open, um, I think is important. Uh, in terms of, you know, discussing this in the spectrum that was just suggested. It is, you know, in fact, true that statistically, um, I, I don't believe there is exact statistics uh, on what the percentage of Black women versus white versus Hispanic women, but uh, it is um, true that, unfortunately, Black women experience domestic violence uh, at exceedingly higher rates um, than Hispanic, uh, than white, and then eight followed by Asian women. And the unfortunate part of this is that disproportionately so more likely to be criminalized by the system when they're seeking help, because not only they must deal with racism and stereotypes when contacting the police, but they're also routinely arrested when trying to defend themselves yeah. um, against an abusive partner. So, there are so many other social issues that are connected to domestic violence um, that we can certainly continue to discuss. Um, um, quick question, Russ. Is that a bunny in the back? Yeah. <laughs> That's my bunny. That's my <laughs> oh bunny, my OG. Silky Jamal. You're so lucky. Uh, I want a bunny so bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean to go off topic, but I'm like, I think I see a bunny, <laughs> and that's my favorite thing right now. Everybody. All right. Uh, so one of the questions that I had, um, if I, as a casual observer or a friend or sister, whatever, how are there ways that I could identify that there may be a potential problem in someone's relationship or anyone listening? Are there signs that we can look for to maybe ask more probing questions of someone we know if we think that they might be being abused? Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll start with, with, with one, maybe two. I think a common one is uh, the tactic of using isolation. So, because it, it makes sense that um, if he can isolate her, there are less opportunities for her to get support, less opportunities for her to uh, you know, get a reality check that no, she's not the problem. He's responsible for the choices he's make, he makes and on and on and on. So he understands that. So, so he works as hard as he can to make sure he has as much control over her and thus the tactic of isolation. So if you have a friend or a family member, someone you care about, and you see some change in their availability, like, oh, well, I can't you know, see you anymore, or uh, I, you know, a, a excuses, a clear shift in, in the norms in terms of their, their availability, or you try to talk to them and they can't, 
they, they don't answer the phone at, at the time that they normally would, because of course you might be intercepting the call or monitoring the call or an email or text or whatever other form of communication. If you see some drastic, or even it doesn't even have to be drastic, change in those norms, that could be a warning sign that he is monitoring and working aggressively to ensure that she, she's you know, isolated. Um, the signs of um, her, 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 her own confidence and sense of, sense of self. You see somebody who's usually quite vibrant and showing up and you see issues of um, what might look like um, depression, like um, worrying about their own future, worried about their, their self-worth and so on and so on. You can feel in the rest of the life. That could be a sign that something might be going on and an opportunity to make an observation. If, if you have the opportunity to talk to that person, say, hey, I noticed what's going on, you know? Don't, don't yeah. see a change. We often see changes in the people around us and we observe it, note it, but oftentimes don't say something. So that is one of the biggest, you know, the biggest ones I, I, um, I've noticed. And I would tend to agree, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, somebody is always um, showing up with a partner only to social events if they come and uh, that doesn't happen. Otherwise, you know, the obvious signs, of course, if somebody is all of a sudden wearing long sleeves uh, and the weather might be hot, you know, uh, or, you know, somebody is spotting sunglasses inside if it's a brief appearance, uh, this, this could be obvious. But I think one of the most important things for us to also remember that education is key for everybody who wants to understand this. There are plenty of resources available. And one thing that we don't do is we don't judge and we don't wait for the person to come to us. You know, we, we do start the conversation uh, if we care. And we gotcha. do say, okay. you know, if something is wrong or we express concern, but in a gentle manner also. Uh, in the beginning, because that could isolate the person mm -hmm. even more. I would also add that, you know, abusers are equally as uh, charming as they are, you know, aggressive, right? So mm. in the capacity that, you know, you have someone, much to Elena's point, who just suddenly starts showing up in your life and is working hard to, you know, gain allies within families and friend communities. And that partner is looking to um, always has to ask permission to do things that they would normally and routinely do, you know, as an individual. Um, or let me check with, and it sounds, you know, based on our culture that's steeped in romanticism and all these kind of Hollywood movies about like what it looks like when the partner is like fully integrated in your life and how wonderful it is to have someone like keep checking in with you and mm -hmm. when did you get home and, you know, tell me when you leave and all that kind of stuff. That looks from the outside in and the casual observer as a person that's very caring and attentive. But what it often masks is control. Interesting. And an inability for a person to act independently where they've been very confident otherwise, much to Lester's point. So it's that lack of decision-making ability on their own. And I would like to add to this, um, you know, the way that I joined my sister's place is when I was beginning to switch my um, workplaces, I was looking for my new home. And during the pandemic, I was truly taken aback by how much of that I noticed on social media, women commenting about uh, whether it was, you know, financial, um, uh, lack of financial freedom or truly looking for shelter because there was physical abuse. So if you read between the lines, it's pretty obvious that the one to this wonderful um, women's group uh, discussing finances only 
And I just saw a post mm-hmm. yesterday and I'm still contemplating how to reach out to the person because all the accounts and everything else are open only under sure. her partner's name. And so when that spending is also controlled, uh, that is truly abused because that is holding someone hostage, you know, not letting them build their credit history for the potential other life and or, you know, buy food or supplies that they may need. So it is present. And just like I saw, you know, to keep back, coming back to that billboard, you know, if you see it, you can stop it. But the problem is you need to open your eyes or your ears and likely we will see it. I would just say that there needs to be, and Elester and Elena have both spoken about this. We are not trained as a culture nationally or even within our communities about what healthy relationships look like. True. We are all kind of um, conditioned to perform in relationships a certain type of way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's Disney movies or Hollywood blockbuster romances, mm-hmm. it says this is how relationships should work. This person should be desperately pursuing you. And once they have you, they should be your everything. That is not healthy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A person, yeah. one person cannot meet all your wants and needs. And, you know, often when you are vesting all of you in one person, you are isolating yourself and you're creating an uh, arena and even a, you know, a space where it says, this is all that I am and all that I know. So of course your identity is fused in that. Mm-hmm. And you have these people that when they break up you know, and end relationships, they are lost. They completely lose their identity and it's enmeshed in another person. Um, I think what needs to be you know, appreciated is the respect for individuality. And, the, and an education in this is how you engage someone relationally in a healthy way. I mean, is there a, um, is there really like a playbook for that though? Like, you know what I mean? Like, cause I, cause I hear everything, everything that you're saying that I've heard, like I've, all of my learning has been like, okay, well, I've learned from this relationship. Let's come to the next and let's learn from this relationship. Is there a one size fits all for like what healthy relationships look like or is it kind of something that um is unique to individuals i would lean on you lester's um answers here because he is a therapist to your point um, Stephen, let's start with the 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 position that so much of what we learn about healthy relationships come from our caretakers right about relationships so that's the backdrop and we are likely to replicate that dynamic, those dynamics, unless we get intentional to create a new paradigm, a new way of engaging. So I want that as a context or backdrop. We just would keep going. So um, I think there are some basic, I think respect, the idea of, of, of what it means to respect and honor some, you know, somebody's differences, because so much of, um, relationship when I see a lot of challenges in a relationship it's going after sameness and my way right there's usually um at least in romantic relationships a number of predictable phases like you got romantic love then you've got the power struggle and then you have conscious love right those are three general um phases but we are not taught how to navigate those phases so for example to your question again if you want to go general it would be to understand that in romantic love, it is not real love. It is a lot of projection onto the other person in terms of what you want them to be usually based 
on your own imprints from childhood and your, your family of origin about what relationships ought to be. So just that awareness um, of, of, of projections and it being not quite real in the sense because we've got both a lot of phys physiological stuff going on in terms of chemicals running through your, your the bath, the chemical bath of, whoa, this is going to be great, you know, and uh, the idealism, you can't have enough of each other, enough sex, and the list goes on and on. And then invariably you hit the power struggle phase, right? And we don't know what to do there because we falsely think, oh, I must have made the wrong choice because um, this person is no longer who I thought they were, i.e. when I met them in the, you know, in the romantic phase in the beginning. And, and so we either start checking out, like bolting, I'm out of here, or we go aggressively to try to get what we want with the language of you always, you never, why don't you, you know, pushing and being oftentimes being aggressive to try to get what we want. So part of the training is about how do you get what you want in the midst of the power struggle? How do you ask, you know, for, for it in a way that is self-respecting and respectful of the other person? So, yes, yeah, mm -hmm. so there are some clear guidance, for example, in one of the models in healthy relationship for healthy relationship called the Margo relationship therapy. Mm -hmm. There are actual um, exercises about how to do that in a healthy way or respectful way to ask for what you want to increase the chance uh, that you would get it. So I think there are some general principles, um, mutual respect, you know, respect for self, respect for other that I think go, you know, goes, goes a long way. And one last quick point. Again, I know it's, it's all genders, but again, I'm going to speak about male-identified folks. When you think about it, patriarchy does not prepare men for healthy relationships. It's quite the opposite. When you look at it, it's, com it's competition, you know? It's power. All the preparations, if you really look very closely, you, you don't show you know, vulnerability, you don't cry, you don't this and you don't that. It is preparing men to go to war. If you look at patriarchal's preparation um, for what that kind of manhood looks like. And when he is not on the front line, be it Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever, in that preparation, it's the living room, it's the bedroom, it's at home that he enacts all those patriarchal preparations in terms of how to engage, particularly with women and children. So it's a lot of undoing. And so it's through workshops, it's through therapy, and so on and so on, Stephen, in terms of how we can learn to really relate in, 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 in a different way. Can we just take a moment to talk about how beautiful it sounds to hear conscious loving? Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, thank you for bringing it back to that, Russ. When I heard that too, that was beautiful, for sure. That's the third phase, conscious loving. I mean, it just seems so yeah. purposeful and intentional and, and mindful, right? Yeah. Like we don't, we don't move that way. You know, ours is like flowers and candy oh, and exotic yeah. trips, you know, very much a performance of love, you know, that is that is impossible to maintain, right? Conscious loving yeah. says, I consider you, you know, remember, you know, I work with Lester personally, and he was very keen to say, you have wants and needs and she has wants and needs and both matter, you know, they matter too, mm -hmm. you know, it's not one versus the other, you know what I mean? Like th there's this... Um, unnecessary culture that's, you know, exists on social media that pits, you know, partners against one another. And it's, it's, it's just yeah. disgusting yeah. to see, you know, this, this is not a win-lose situation. It's not a, it's not an either or situation. It's like, we have co-created a space for intimacy 
and we are sharing happiness together. You know, you bring yours to the table and I bring mine. Unfortunately, we have this culture that thinks and operates in this way of someone can make you happy. You know what I mean? That's, that's, that's not, right. that's not conscious, yeah. you know? Or accurate. Um, <laughs> one, of, one of the things I did want to ask, I heard a story recently about <clears throat> a single mom of two children, a boy and a girl, and over the course of their life, as the boy grew up, he began to abuse his mom and his sister. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you guys work with? Because I don't think, I, I, I don't, I rarely have, have ever hear anyone talk about that, but I've had friends growing up that experienced things like that. And I know that it's something that also exists. So I wonder if in the domestic violence space, do you guys see that? Do you work with it? And are these uh, facilities open to people in that situation? Elena, I can go. You want to you have a preference to start? Sure, sure. Now go, go. Okay. Yeah. I can't tell you how many calls we've gotten over the years with mothers calling about their Jesus Christ. who are abusive to them. Yes, right, right on. And uh, we've had a mentoring program, you know, to assist with, with, with that also. Um, what we'd say is, hey, does the son have a, an adult male in, in his life? Again, it could be an uncle, maybe the dad, and actually come to the 24-week class with the son, you know, teenage, you know, teenager. So he got the experience to be mm-hmm. in the group setting, watching adult men doing the work, and he gets to be exposed to that. So he gets to do some work and say, but not alone as a teenager. He needs another male with him to process, you know, what comes up in, in that space. What we often see, if you think about it, that son is like any other boy who from day one gets those clear messages about what it means to be a man. And part of that message is loud and clear is you, you as a male identified um, folk have a responsibility to be a loyal soldier of the patriarchy. You're gonna be on the front lines and in the intimate context of the home, that is where you exert that kind of training and authority and dominance. And those boys have it too. So when he sees, um, let's say, for example, sometime if his mother is being abused, let's say, by a man, mm-hmm. what happens more often than not, she gets blamed. Not him, yeah. right? He gets mad at his mother for, quote, unquote, allowing that to happen and models exactly what he's seeing his dad doing and other men doing with his mother. I've seen that over and over again. Or, you know, or sometimes it's also... If she, if she, you know if she's presented as really a very powerful woman in her own right, he gets mm. the message too that dying okay even as a mother, you yeah. cannot be that powerful. It challenges so much of his training, especially if that if right. there's not a, a male in that space, a male identified folks like a dad. Right. Dad is away. There's oftentimes a lot of anger about dad not being around. I've seen that. That, that, that over and over again. And the system pushes him to be in that role of taking responsibility for a lot of what's going on that adult, he gets adultified. <laughs> we made a verb out of adult, right? Adultified. And, um, and oftentimes there's resentment for being in that role, again, takes it out on, on her. So all that to say, absolutely, con- I can't tell you the amount of calls we get at Men's Stopping Violence. Yes. And I'd like to add from MSP's perspective, you know, I always, I'm always on the lookout for testimonials as well, because as Stephen said earlier in the podcast, that's what makes fundraising uh, powerful. 
and I came across this note and, you know, it was written very abidly from a woman who was a past client, how wonderful, you know, her time was and how MSP got her uh, to the place where she needed to be. And so when years later, you know, her daughter was in a similar domestic violence situation, she knew exactly where to send her. And it wasn't exactly the testimonial that I was looking to get, you know, but we also have to understand while there is society, there are triggers also uh, to domestic violence incidents as well. And quite often, you know, it's people's experiences with discrimination or economic insecurity or even pregnancy, you know. Uh, and add to this, of course, the pandemic right now, right? I keep telling everybody that I think we all need to be aware of what our triggers right now are because we have yes. been exhausted and we have been over the hump of being exhausted and more is coming. So um, it does, you know, it, it does not stop within one family or with one generation, especially if it's been experienced by generations because of the societal norms that have been accepted. So um, that's unfortunately, you know, nothing unusual. I would also add that, you know, to that point, the reality that until very recently, black people did not have agency over their own bodies. Like, you know, we were lit literally chattel. Mm. You know, and if you look at the mm -hmm. prison industrial complex, that's still a thing that still persists today. Um, if you look at something as simple as um, the Crown Act, you know, that's recently been acted across, you know, several states where black women were not permitted to wear their hair as it grows out of their heads and a, a law had to be passed. You know, if we look at what's happening um, with abortion laws, you know, and the fight for, you know, agency over women's bodies, you know, you have a bunch of old, mm -hmm. wealthy, stuffy, bloated white men dictating what happens to young girls. That's disgusting. Right. So, you know, this is, I think it's really imperative because Absolutely. I know that it's, you know, Absolutely. the marketing ploy to focus on what these individuals are doing. I think it's imperative that we focus on what's happening at a national and even global level in terms of what, what patriarchy has wrought, what misogyny has wrought, and what structural violence has wrought. Can I, can I ask, so all of you guys, um, you know, all of you guys are steeped in very heavy topics, right? Um, everybody is always working with some of some of the toughest topics that they that there are to deal with. Whether it's domestic violence, Russ, I know that you are always fighting for social justice in different ways, shapes, and forms. And and no, I mean, I I you take my shirt off and show like S right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Wait, we'll get back to that because he's also ripped now. Like you're, you're looking good right now too, kid. Um, but uh, when you are steeped in it, right? Like I, I, we do a lot of fundraising work. We're talking a lot of to a lot of people that are really steeped into really heavy causes. What is it that keeps you going? You know, like because how do you keep the glue together? Like how do you, how do you not, keep the glue yeah. together? Because I know that speaking for myself um you know we've we've dealt with a lot of causes but one of the reasons that i moved to fundraising outside of working nonprofit and like food scarcity and stuff like that was when you were when you're fundraising you're able to kind of take a step back and have a little bit of space from some of these causes but you guys are very much steeped in, in the mix of it yeah how do you how do you manage your own mental health i think is the own mental health and own drive to just keep, keep fighting a good fight can i'll start 
I'll start because I'm the I'm the newbie. I'm the rookie in this arena. <laughs> I have a I have a wonderful therapist. Lester is a guru, um, and he's he saved my life. And I, I want to thank you, brother, like live on air while we're here. You saved my life. Oh wow! Um, I also have a rich community, you know, of friends and loved ones, and I have a wonderful outlet, you know, through comedy um, and my writing, you know, that I can express myself. Self expression is is key, and it's helped me find my voice over the last decade that I've been performing. Um, and I have a wonderful family, you know what I mean? That I can, you know, a six-year-old can make you very present. You know Absolutely. And if, the, and if none of that works, then edibles, you know, what I've <laughs> learned, from, you know, one of my favorite people um, and on earth, you know, Paris Sachet and Rollo Boinkins is you got to leave a little space for some ignorance. That's you know what I mean? Like you need to, it can't just all be, you know, this, this, urgency and in thread towards you know let's 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 save the world you know that's yeah. that, that's exhausting mm-hmm. for sure what about you guys for me it's community I think as well um and just sometimes simple acts of kindness um when people reach out to us and they are so generous we just recently had the um bike drive because you know your happiest memories, right, of childhood sometimes is riding that bike. And IVC yeah. store at Target came through with a donation of 171 bikes for children that are in our programs of different ages. The manager who answered the call, you know, he, he could have ignored it because, you know, just it's work on his plate. It's, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting in front of his bosses and potentially getting in trouble for giving us such a big donation. Um, but it was his neighborhood, it was his city, and he worked with us for six months tirelessly making sure that we're going to get the best bikes and helmets all together. And while it was corporate support, I truly believe it happened because of the person who answers the, the phone call. So, um, so I think it's still being kind to each other. That's what I, I get through my work, and that's what inspires me. And um, and also family and friends. Excellent, you you, you Lester. So um, community. If we talk about specifically male violence against women, which again in our view is rooted in in patriarchy, and there's definitely the intersection intersectional forces of racism and heterosexism and all the other oppressions are right there, right? They're all interconnected, and that's the point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm realizing. On a daily basis, I'm in a privileged location as a male-identified person. So it does not take that much out of me. Now, if I'm those moments where the emphasis is race, oh yeah, it's exhaustive, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, you know, and so on, and so on. So for the most part, it's I'm using my privilege, and it doesn't exhaust me that much because of that. But also, I'm with a community of men. Our staff is 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 pretty much all men, and so we have each other to process stuff that comes up like, whoa, would you believe? Whatever, whatever. So that makes a huge difference. I play hard. I work hard. I play hard. Nice, I set man. a lot of boundaries, uh, Stephen. I'm like, nope, I'm not on social media. That's why I'm still saying. Oh, wow. uh, I don't have Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. You can't, I don't have any account. Because I think Thank I knew you. early I'm enough, yeah. early enough to know what that does to one's mental health. If you don't be, watch it and be quite, I know a lot of people yeah. navigating it well. We just heard what come up with Facebook, with the, you know, with the 
whistleblower and all the stuff that we learn, particularly with children. So all of those come together, you know, pieces um, generally, you know, take care of, you know, take care of myself. So um, thank you guys so much. We are unfortunately, and I can't even believe it, at, we're actually a little over time, but it's perfectly fine. Um, but before we go, I just wanted to touch on and say a few things really quick. Um, number one, we spent a lot of time, we're primarily talking about violence against women. And for anyone listening, I just wanna be very clear that this is an issue that touches everyone. Men are abused, children are abused, inter intersexual sex relationships, everyone is, um, is affected. Same sex relationships I met, everyone is affected. So um, don't feel excluded. Uh, maybe we'll do another show where we are more inclusive, but do not feel excluded. And if you need help, if you are being abused, there's an international hotline that you can call 1-800-799-SAFE, S-A-F-E, SAFE, 1-800-799-SAFE. Call, make the call, get some help and get out of that situation. Before we get out of here though, you Lester, I guess we'll have no answer, but can you tell, can you guys tell people where uh, they can find you on social media so that you can follow <laughs> <laughs> and see what, what you're doing, but you can get contact, I guess, information for um, men stopping violence. Yes, yes, men stopping violence. So go, you so I'll start then. Um, yes, please. Um, www.menstoppingviolence.org. Um, is the way to go. And we have um, Facebook and Instagram. So there we go, organizationally. So that's how you can reach me. Or you can actually call our office, 404-270-9894. Um, that's 404-270-9894. That's the way to, to reach us. If you're a male-identified uh, person and need some help, we, we, you know, we are here for you. Excellent. Thank you. Elena, where can, where can our listeners find you guys? dc.org. And we are also active on Facebook and Instagram under the same name and our all information on the website. We love hearing from people. You can volunteer with us. You can have uh, volunteer with children. There are plenty of opportunities. We want support of any kind. And again, we're thankful for this opportunity to speak during this month about uh, this important issue of domestic violence and let's raise awareness together and make this slightly a better world if we can. Yes, love it. Russ, how can our listeners find you? So you can follow me on IG at Russ underscore jokes. Um, and please, please, please support our fundraiser. This is an annual event. I'm happy to report that we have surpassed our fundraising goal of $40,000. Yeah. 10 times what we raised last year. So that means that next year oh, wow. we're going to raise $400,000. So we're extremely okay. excited about what's happening. Um, for those who need more information about what we're doing, it's www.hbcugolftournament.com. Excellent. Right. Thank you all so much. Cannot tell you how much I would, I didn't even think I would, I was very nervous to have this conversation because I just thought it would be a, a lot more painful. Um, and there were pain points. However, it was so informative and absolutely lovely to speak with each of you. Thank you so much for your time. I genuinely appreciate you guys. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for honoring us with this space. And you, Stephen, to you, Frankie, for honoring us with your story. Oh, um, absolutely. I'm very sorry for what happened to you. I'm sorry you had that experience. And I'm glad you're doing whatever is necessary to heal. And yeah, it's okay. And I, and I just want to reiterate in terms of that, it's not my story. It's, a, it's our story. This is a lot of people's story. And I share happily and openly about a lot of parts of my life for that reason. 
because I thankfully, and, and one, actually real quick, one last thing I do want to say, um, we talk a lot about survivors and you're, you're a survivor. And I need to say that I did not survive my childhood. I didn't, it killed me literally. Mm -hmm. And I had to find a way to resurrect myself and that's okay too. And I think that that's a story we tell women, especially a lot. Oh girl, you survived that. You're a and that's not always everyone's story. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very important for people to know that you can die in certain moments, but you can come back. Um, and, and that's just an important thing that I wanted to, to put that to put out there. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, we are not what happened to us, you know? Absolutely. All right. I've been Frankie French. And I'm Stephen Campbell. And this is The Nonprofits. Hey. Bye, you guys.